Hey, my name is Connor Malley, and I'm the founder of SQR Squash Radio. And it turns out I'm a squashpreneur. What does that mean? Basically, an entrepreneur, but in the squash industry. I've founded Metro Squash in Chicago. I've been a teaching professional, tried out for Team USA, came nowhere close to making the team. But years later, I did find myself on the business side as director of Team USA. I've ran the US Open while working at US Squash for several years, done consulting for squash clubs and events, even court construction. The list goes on. These days, I'm still deeply involved in squash, especially with my new role with the PSA, the Pro Squash Tour, but trying to expand into other racket sports in lighting, court construction, and strategy. There's some exciting projects I'm working on, and I can't wait to share them. But in the meantime, we hope you're enjoying these squash-focused podcasts our team is helping to put out. We love doing them, and we hope you enjoy them too. What about this? This call is being recorded. Today's guest is Nathan Lake, who is a professional squash player on the PSA Tour. And he's hitting his stride as he continues to push new career-high rankings, currently ranked number 36 in the world. Nathan is originally from England, but finds himself in Chicago and engaged to Haley Mendez, who is also a professional squash player, ranked in the top 40 from the United States. In this episode, we talk through the recent breakthrough he's been experiencing on the tour and some of the focus areas that have helped him get there. We talk about the Commonwealth Games and what a path looks like for him to try and make that team. We dive into the differences between living in England and the United States and also talk about how he approaches sponsorship to help him pursue his career. We split off the quickfire section for this episode and are likely do so going forward, but definitely checking it out because it's a great one. It was a pleasure to have Nathan on the show and to have him in the United States, where he has made the University Club of Chicago his home club, which is a special place for me because I used to work there. Quick thank you to our sponsor, ProSport LED, who actually has some very interesting developments going on. They are strengthening their partnerships within the racket sports world. They are partnering up with Padel Plus to bring Padel courts into the United States and the UK. And just like their LED lights, these are premium quality courts at great prices. What's also unique about Padel Plus is their canopy roof structure that has all of the great qualities of getting an outdoor playing experience, but you have the dependability. You can play your match regardless of rain or snow. So if you know of anyone interested in lights or Padel courts, please go ahead and put us in touch. Reach out to us at squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Squash fans, welcome back to another episode of Squash Radio. I'm here with Nathan Lake, who I'd like to welcome to the show. Welcome to the show, Nathan. Hey, Connor. Thanks for having me. So for those who aren't as familiar with you and your resume, you're a 30, almost 30 years old, right? Almost. Uh, that's the key part there. Uh, Hanging almost. on to my 20s. Yeah, which which I'm sure it, when you're doing your goal setting, this must have been a, a career high. That, I mean, like, you know, I want to get here before my 30s. So you, 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 <laughs> we'll go into more detail there, but almost 30. Originally from England, but now finding himself in Chicago. So we're going to go into all of that. But recently... 
you and I were, were both just an event in Houston, Texas, playing um, one of the, the highest ranking. Uh, it was a gold event, 110K prize money, where you had quite a saga down there of losing first round, but then being drawn out of a hat with a lucky loser because the way the draw works, and then going on to the quarterfinals. That is yeah, pretty... boy. Yeah, that was pretty remarkable. Talk a little bit about your experience there. Yeah, that was bizarre. A bit of a roller coaster there. So I was, I think I was the second match on of the event and uh, lost to Yusuf Solomon, very close three love. One game went to a tie break. The other two were very close. And obviously I was, I felt I'd played well. So that, that was something, but I was disappointed to have lost as everyone always is. And then later that day being told, I've been picked as a lucky loser because Mohammed's unfortunately had to pull out because of a positive COVID test. It's something that hardly ever happens in the sport anymore yeah. now that qualifying is not as much of a thing at the major events. So I didn't know how to feel really. And not only that, because of the way the draw worked, I went from the top quarter down to the bottom quarter. Right. So it was all, it was very, very strange. And uh, it was actually very good that I had that day just to process the emotion of should I be upset I'd lost? Should I be guilty? I've been given this opportunity in a major event. So that day was very helpful in just giving me some time to settle down mentally and then go again the next uh, the next match. And your your performance on court was really remarkable. I mean, really, oh, thank uh, you. you could see what I saw in, was you just really hitting your stride. And I think that is part reflected in where you are in your ranking. I mean, you're hitting a career high of uh, number 38 in the world. For context of other people listening, it's you've spent about six years in the top 100 looks like around for the past three years though you've been in the top 50 but each time it gets a little bit harder breaking each yeah. barrier the top 10 or in, integers of 10 so and with this performance of the quarterfinals i mean i know the, the smart way is to not worry about the rankings they'll take care of themselves but what will that performance getting to the quarterfinals of a gold tournament do for your rankings bump here it almost certainly bumped me up but the slightly sad part is that this time, 18 months ago, so at the moment, ranking rankings are slightly different to normal. Normally, they the points you accumulate from an event are on for 12 months, whereas because COVID was a thing and events weren't happening for a while, they froze the rankings for a period. So at the moment, you have almost 18-month-old scores on there. So mm. the, the, the only sad part of it is that my biggest score actually comes off this month. So I replaced oh. my biggest score and improved it a bit. But I, I should hopefully, depending on what happens in Detroit at Motor City Open next week, I mean, I should go up and, uh, you know, that's a huge goal of mine to get as high as I possibly can. It enables me to approach sponsors. It helps my chances of playing for England. You know, all, all the things I want to achieve, play at big events, that ranking is a, a key part to all that. When you've been goal setting throughout your career, cracking in the top 40, was that something you, you even felt could have been possible for you? recently yes i, yeah. I think um, but go back six years ago right like did you come on and you're like yeah. yes no probably no. not i mean i would love to i mean I, I love squash i want to be as successful as i can but six years ago would have been 23 it was probably just inside the top 100 it just looks like a mountain at the time yeah but the higher you get your when you're a youngster the the improvements when you're an amateur player the improvements you can make are massive in a short space of time if you have the right direction good work ethic whereas everyone i'm competing against has been doing it for just as long as i have if not longer 
and they're just as passionate, they're working just as hard, and the percentages are so hard to come by. So when I looked at it, I remember looking at it when I just got in the top 100, right, how high could I go? You see all these great names in front of you, and you right. think, oh, my gosh, <laughs> what am I going to do? Right. But right. The, the trick is to, like you alluded to, just try and break it up. Focus on, I want to get to such and such. How am I going to get there? What does that look like? What does Nathan like as a such and such ranked player in the world and and work your way back almost make yourself a roadmap to that point now that that's very easy for me to say it's very hard to do that and execute but that's the sort of logic i'm using in my head so recently have you started recalibrating your goals and your plan where are you in this process goal setting is something i've sort of played around with over the years at the moment having done well the last couple of months it's definitely changed my mindset as to what I think is possible. And working with a couple of new coaches now being in Chicago, that has changed my mindset and outlook. And actually, with one of the new coaches in particular, what do I want? What's possible? Why not dream a bit bigger? Why not? You know, if you don't think it's possible, it's probably not going to come come true. So uh, I'm kind of in that phase at the moment trying to think well where can I go with this what does Nathan in the top 35 look like what does Nathan in the top 30 look like you know and just try and keep taking it step by step what would you say like uh, even in business or so many walks of life there's everyone has inherent strengths and weaknesses and there's certain adages of some people say you know work on your weaknesses or work a little bit of everything to get better just the one percent rule across each one or lean a hundred percent into your strengths it's a long way of setting up. I'm just curious, what do you and your coaches think is your biggest asset or your strength that you can lean into? I think my strength, without giving away all the trade secrets, that, <laughs> that secret, yeah, my ball control is my strength. Physically, maybe has not quite been as much of a strength over the years. So that's something that I'm putting a lot of energy into. But the strength of mine is, has definitely been ball control traditionally and spend a lot of hours on court solo practicing and and I go back and forth in my mind as to whether you try and get those marginal gains is often referred to in the UK, like a little 1% across the board equal, or whether to go lean into your strength and go after that. And I go back and forth. At the moment, I'm leaning into the, you know, your strength is what sets you apart. Right. And, and that's what people pay you for. That's what, that's your money maker. Um, but you've got to have those non-negotiables with the physicality, with the mental side. So yeah. I've... It's interesting to hear you say that because I actually, one thing that in watching you play in Houston was really came through for me was your physicality on court. Your, oh, very kind, yeah. y- your ability to, it was obviously you're, you're putting a lot of effort, but the players were hitting what I w- was thinking almost winners against you and you were putting them back. And these were low cross-court drives that you were just routinely getting back. And it wasn't just a fluke. It was time and time again. And maybe those would have been 50-50 balls of getting them back. But here you're well into the 90th percentile of returning. I was like, that player should stop doing that against you because it hasn't been working. Uh, so it's interesting to hear you say um, a, a different area of strength for you. Yeah. And some of the guys out there just get so many balls back. I mean, the obvious Marshall I played in Houston gets so many balls back. It's ridiculous. You're making Farag, Cole, and there's there's lots of players like that. Just incredible how many balls they can get back. And it's a real challenge to try and find ways to find space on the court and 
outfox them in other departments you know and that, that's the beauty of squash you can be good at a variety of different elements and be successful and the real skill is figuring out right how can i realistically beat this person how do i expose them whilst also playing to your strengths yeah going back to a little bit of goal setting you know we're in a unique time frame that there's a lot of lead up to the commonwealth games yeah. and, I, and i know for anyone that participates within that from those countries like this is a big deal this is not only for i'd say the individuals that participate within the sport but really as a sport this is we're part of a it's a huge stage for us being part of any multi-sport event it's a big deal so where are you in that process of trying to make the commonwealth game team so england squash approached it's different now in four years ago eight years ago the england team largely picked itself there were a breakaway of probably four or five players that were top 16 in the world, maybe even higher. Um, whereas now it's a bit more like the Wild West, I refer to it as. There's about eight, even 10 players that probably feel they've got a chance of getting picked. So England Squash contacted all of us to be involved and in the selection process. And Commonwealth Games is different. So a lot of your uh, American listeners will be familiar with hardball doubles. But in the Commonwealth Games, we play soft softball doubles. Mm -hmm. Uh, The court's about one and a half times as wide. The tin is about 13 inches. So traditionally, amateur players will play on 19 inches, and they take it down to 13 for doubles. And there's just as many medals up for grabs in doubles. Sorry, there's more than in singles. So England Squash contacted us, and I think to their credit, have exposed all of those players that were within selection. And we've been exposed to a lot of doubles the last 12, 18 months. Uh, Once a month, there's normally been a double squad at our national center and selection will be done in probably April time, I would imagine, because you've got to lock up those doubles partnerships. And the the safest way to get picked is to be top three in the country. That's the safest way to get picked. You're master of your own fate then. And at the moment, I am trying to get as high as I can, as fast as I can to try and take control of my own fate is the uh, honest answer. And and what do, do they use the PSA rankings and sort by English or the, is there a separate ranking system that they, they use for English? No, squad? it's done on um, PSA rankings. Um, and as, uh, to my knowledge, the top three male and female players will be picked. And then there's a bit more license to pick the fourth and if they choose a fifth based on doubles partnerships. So there's a bit more license there, but the top three singles players will be picked and they'll be able to play singles squash. But it's a massive deal. James and Nick played eight years ago. And 5 million people in the UK watched live on TV. It was live on BBC. I mean, that, that just doesn't happen. In, in the UK, that doesn't, as far as I'm aware, other than maybe Egypt, that's not happening anywhere no. else in the world. So it's a massive deal. It's a massive deal for squash in the country to get that airtime, interviews with high-profile presenters, exposure for the game. It is, it's massive yeah. for the sport. I agree. I mean, right now, I would say it's, it's the pinnacle of the sport, to be honest. You know, for that for those players involved, definitely, yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's big time. And we do get reports uh, along the lines of ratings or engagement or ticket sales. And squash routinely outperforms all expectations of where the event organizers think it will be. And it's this was true even in in Glasgow, and I think that was twenty fifteen. I can't remember the year, but Glasgow and twenty fourteen. Um, twenty fourteen. Thank you. And. Um, yeah, that was watched by, I think, one point something million viewers yeah. on BBC. So, yeah. Well, and and how often are you traveling back to the the UK for 
for the- before Christmas, I was doing a lot of air miles. Um, <laughs> so I was going back uh, probably once a month, uh, linking it up with tournaments. And and it's a big goal. To play for England is a massive goal of mine. Massive goal. And the Commonwealth Games is another chance to do that. It's one of the most high-profile events. So I felt it was worth going back to to do everything I could. You know, Whether I get picked or not, I can sleep easy thinking I've done everything I can here. So that was why I came back. So speaking of going back and forth, I mentioned that you you now find yourself in Chicago where I used to live and be the uh, teaching professional at uh, University Club of Chicago, which is now your home club. And yeah. um, what a great community. But I'd love to hear how are you and your fiance, Haley, uh, settling in? Very well, thanks. We love it. Haley started studying at Chicago Booth Business School, so very proud of her for getting in there. One of the best business schools um, in America, if not the world. And we're loving having that community of squash, a new community to us. We've been here for the Windy City probably three or four times together. But to get to know those people better has been fantastic. And John Flanagan, Yoni, the head pro at the club, Terry, Josh, they couldn't have been more welcoming to us. And hopefully they understand it, but it, it means the world to us. Yeah, very thankful to be here. What if I asked you, what has been a pleasant surprise for you or just a surprise that your impression of prior to coming to living in Chicago that then you've experienced since being here? The size of the squash community and how welcoming everyone is. I, I love that about the US, how eager people are to help, how open to ideas people are. And Chicago is a perfect example of that. And and I, I've just been surprised at how many pockets of squash there are in the Chicago area. and that gives me a huge amount of hope for the game and uh, and exciting projects are going on here and they're trying to push prize money. They're trying to look at building outdoor courts. There's so much potential and people pushing for new horizons, which I think is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, you're right. And I said this in Houston because it's remarkable what that community has decided to step up and do in raising the prize money. They've done a lot of 10Ks, 20Ks, 30Ks and now they're doing them they hosted the men's 110k and they want it, they're going to be hosting the women's 110k yeah. come this september so you know when communities get together uh, behind a united vision some great things can happen and chicago is clearly leading the way in prize money and and putting professional squash on a, on a world stage um yeah i mean the walter family their commitment is mind-blowing it's fantastic yeah. that 10-year deal they've done and and I think we are starting to see other major events have to step up and follow that. And and that's that's great. And you need someone to take that lead. And I mean, I've, I've never met the Walter family, but I would shake their hand with a big grin on my face saying thank you so much because they've done a massive service to the to the sport. To your point about setting a new standard or setting a new bar or being the first and the leadership behind that. And we saw that with equality and prize money and I was proud of the U.S. Open that we were we happened to be the first platinum event to do that. But then Windy City Open was number two, so Chicago again matching it, and then the cascading impact that's had globally yeah. is is massive. And now our goal is to raise the overall prize money because we do need it. The pros need it. It's a tough slog. Actually, before we go on to talking a little bit more about that of you know sponsorship, y- you and your uh, fiance have had a unique perspective that you both have been transplants, like living in each other's home country mm-hmm. and going back and forth. And talk a little bit about that experience of of going and living in these different countries and what your shared impressions were of what you both experienced. Yeah, it's been fantastic. We've been very lucky to experience living in New York, which is where Haley's from, Brooklyn Heights, 
um, and Cheltenham, England, where I'm from in the southwest of England. And it's been brilliant. The, the one the one constant, which is definitely worth saying, is generally squash attracts good people. There's always a few exceptions to the rule, but anywhere you go, squash clubs are good places, good people, yeah. a nice sense of community. And I've, I've found that in both places. There's been a slight difference between where we grew up playing squash. Pri- private clubs in uh, Brooklyn Heights are a bit different to uh, rugby clubs in Cheltenham. I can definitely tell you that. <laughs> but it's been brilliant. The, the Heights Casino, which is where we were based in Brooklyn, were brilliant to us and are brilliant to us. Haley's family live close to the club and they've given us access to facilities and can't do enough for us. It's a beautiful club. Um, And I loved playing in New York and that community there. And there was lots of squash pros in there when I first started going. I remember being fortunate enough to hit with the Rami a few times. I mean, just, wow. You know, people like Rami aren't wandering around Cheltenham, I can tell you that. So that was pretty cool. And and Hayley, I think, enjoyed coming to England. She loved the league squash scene. I know we've spoken about that, but league squash is brilliant in Europe, especially in England. And Haley loved playing local county league, loved playing national league. And so we've we've really enjoyed it. And from my perspective, I've I've found it fascinating about how, you know, what what groups of people squash is available to in different countries and what things are going on to change that and how the college system, university system is different. I constantly having internal conversations as to what's good, what's bad, how could we make it better? Because Haley and I love squash. It's done yeah. so much to us. That if we can help, we would love to in the future. Absolutely love to. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word about our sponsor. So how are your squash courts looking these days? Are the ball marks starting to add up? Do your courts need some attention and care? Well, in the U.S., there's a new solution coming your way. Pro Sport Court can be your one-stop shop for all your court care needs, from standard cleaning, painting, floor sanding, all the way up to lighting upgrades. Pro Sport Court can have your courts looking like new. Reach out to squashradio at gmail.com to learn more. Now back to our show. Sometimes bringing an outsider into your world actually reveals things to yourself you might not have seen because you're now kind of experiencing it with them or through their eyes, right? Yeah. So when I say that, what was something that you learned about back home? Yeah. Bringing the first, in. the first time uh, I grew up at, uh, at playing at two squash clubs in Chum, one called East Gloss and one called Old Pats. And uh, Old Pats, where my dad played rugby, and they got two squash courts, and they're now in far better condition than when I t- um, the time I'm going to tell you this story. But we walked into the club, and there was a bucket of water on the tee on court two, collecting rainwater. There was a leak, and uh, Haley was horrified. <laughs> And I, I thought that was just somewhat normal. Um, <laughs> Haley was horrified, horrified, and and she took it, she took it very well, and she was joking about it within thirty seconds. But I remember, just like your question, I thought that was normal. Right. But right, Haley right. was horrified <laughs> at the thought that there was a leak. But it it was good fun, and uh, yeah, she enjoyed meeting that squash community there and playing lots of lots of different players and lots of different styles. You know that league squash, I think, is such a great thing yeah. that England is fortunate to have for a junior, an amateur player, even for a professional. It's very different. We do have quote league system here. Like if you look at the high school system or the middle school, and obviously the college is is just yeah. all leagues. 
but we don't have what you have in in Europe and especially in the UK of like that playing for your club or county and that there's a whole system of and there's so much pride and and it's yeah really local bragging well. rights yeah yeah and I think that that is an opportunity and we've talked about this and when I'm saying we as you know kind of PSA in this hat of like we do need to embrace getting league structure in here and and doing everything from the professional level down because I think that will really attract it. But yeah, the college squash is like one big league. That's uh, incredible. That's something that, I mean, someone once said to me, uh, things that America do, the rest of the world generally tends to follow. Mm. And uh, I'm starting to see that with university squash in the UK to a lesser extent, but more universities are building courts. And there's more of a university set up. The British University Championships is a big deal. You get some great players playing. But college squash here is... Wow. I mean, it's massive. It's brilliant. What's been your exposure to that and what, what are your impressions? So when Haley and I uh, first started seeing one another, she was a year post Harvard and we went to Yale to watch the uh, team championships. Her sister was playing. I still think that is one of the best environments at a squash event I've ever been to. And I could not believe it. I was not mentally prepared to walk into the Yale squash facility, which looks like Notre Dame. Yeah, you yeah. walk in and there's God knows how many courts. And I was just not expecting that. I I mean, I'd been to the Mer Center at Harvard, which is, and I was blown away by that. But I just couldn't believe the, there were this many good players on the planet. That's what I couldn't believe to start with the strength and depth of the eights and nines and so many good teams, so much good squash and so much intensity everywhere. It definitely blew me away, and and I enjoy watching the college. I remember watching my, my funniest experience was watching a, a match Harvard v Penn, and there was a girl, Re, Reham, I think her name was Reham Siddiqui, who played one for Penn, and yeah. I was sat really quietly next to this guy in the balcony, and I should have seen the signs because he was completely covered in blue paint, like he 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 painted himself blue. And uh, Gilly introduced the player, uh, the hammer. That was her name, the hammer. And at which point this guy like erupted out of his seat and just shouted, the hammer. <laughs> and I just remember thinking, wow, this is yeah, yeah. brilliant. Yeah. So I'm a big fan of college squash. Yeah, I think that's one of the things, certainly in the US, if you look at like football, basketball, like our college yeah. fans just get really into it. And it's been so exciting to see that sort of culture bleed into squash. And I agree, couldn't agree more that that passion for the fans or from the fans is there at college squash matches. And it makes sense where it's, you know, think of this, how many times you've experienced someone walking into a squash tournament for the first time. And you're like, Oh, who's who, and who should I root for and why? And versus yeah. here, you're like team a team B one's yeah. wearing blue one's wearing red go <laughs> you know like you don't yeah. need too much more than that uh, but obviously if you have ties you're gonna you're gonna pick it so um that's yeah, really exciting and any other sort of culture observations about the u.s since you've you've been over here or that's i mean the clubs generally are beautiful here and i take my hat off to u.s squash for constantly trying to push the bar raise the dial and like I alluded to at the start, there's such a hunger, a drive, an open-mindedness to push things here. And that is there in the UK, but we've been blessed for so long yeah. that I, th I think sometimes that might be a little bit fatigued, whereas here there just seems like such an appetite to grow all the time. And 
and it's you know there's a it's a massive country and I mean you've worked with and at US squash but we've probably only scratched the surface I know people have been saying that for 20 years but you know you're hearing about new facilities like the one in Houston I played that didn't exist 12 18 months ago um Six months ago. Yeah. yeah that's a 10 court facility busy from what I can understand doing well and and that's that's just brilliant um you don't necessarily hear that in England we're very fortunate in England I I'm not trying to sound miserable because we are very fortunate in England that there are so many courts in England so many courts even though courts and clubs have closed which is really sad there are still so many so many courts and so you know both both places there's plenty of room for um, optimism for squash I think yeah I mean for the size of England there was between 7 to 9000 courts in the U in in England versus wow. in the US we we just crossed the threshold of north of 2000 courts we're probably closer to 2500 these days but that just spells out there's a huge yeah. uh, density difference in in two countries and to yeah. to your point about the way that governing bodies earn money is different so US yeah massively the whole setup is very different yeah and and yeah. I think there's a level of complacency. I noticed a level of complacency prior to the, cause they were getting lottery money for so long over in England. Yeah. And so they yeah. were just giving it and spending the budget and you just kind of, you fall into a rut and like, okay, well we got this budget. Let's stretch as far as we can do that versus at us squash. And I think this is still definitely going on today. It's every dollar that has to be earned or you either way via donations or f through uh, yeah. providing services or selling products. So, there's this that there there's kind of like a necessity here to, yeah. to build it yeah whereas yeah to my understanding and this isn't this might not be completely 100 percent accurate but in the uk the money is given by sport england which are an arm of the government which divvy up amount of money they give a variety of governing bodies based on medal potential commonwealth games olympic medals and participation numbers um so so england squash do get funded fairly well considering we're not um an olympic sport because we do well at the commonwealth games and it's it's traditionally been a well high participation sport whereas here obviously it's very different and uh i went to the specter center for the us open last year and i mean that is incredible that place i yeah i mean that's just that, that really did blow me away walking in there i told you about the place i started playing squash with a bucket right, on the right. Yeah, I mean, incredible. And I take my hat off to uh, the people involved that made that happen. And what I really like is that there's a real push for community squash, urban squash. Yeah. And I mean, if if you can get that place busy for major events, that that is going to inspire a next generation, I, I believe. Yeah, I mean, it's to have that sort of flagship model right there. I mean, it really is inspiring. And to then try and we need to spread that. So, and you know, maybe even go bigger somewhere else, right? Maybe Chicago wants yeah. to build a 40 court facility. Who knows? Who knows? But uh, it will come. Well, well, building on that, where we're talking a little bit about sponsorship or revenues. And one of the questions we get asked all the time is so, you know, prize money, all that, which I think is a little bit more front and center, but sponsorship. And you've, you've actually attracted a, a quite a collection of sponsors and, <sighs> you know, I know that that is, it's hard to do. It just, it, it's a whole, you need to give a whole amount of thought to that. So how has that been the process of getting sponsors? Who are you working with right now? Yeah, so I, it felt like the worst thing at the time, but the best thing 
really that ever happened to me was that I was taken off um, England squash funding when I was about 19 or 20. And all of a sudden I had to find a pool of money to pay for my flights. And, and it made me think a lot out, you know, outside the box. And um, so I, I started approaching a few people back in Cheltenham, trying to think what would be of interest to them and their, their companies. And partially through league squash and the community that I grew up with at the club I grew up at, there were a few people I highlighted, spoke to them, put together a pitch, learned a lot of valuable skills doing that. And constantly I'm still honing those skills. And I've had some really long-standing sponsors back in the UK. And that's been massive for me. I mean, I, I don't think I'd be playing if if um, if some of those sponsors hadn't come on board. I mean, that that's how helpful they've been. And before COVID, probably a third of my income came from sponsors, a third came from prize money, and a third came from league squash and exhibitions. And obviously COVID knocked out two of those three to some extent yeah. or to most and those sponsors stay with me through covid and they've been brilliant and recently a be rare expression networks has been massively helpful to me over in america and pro connects my racket sponsor have helped me a lot and i one of the things squash has taught taught me through traveling the world is that how to communicate with people how to sort of highlight what might be interesting to them from a sponsor's point of view and and that's been that's been something that i've looked at and i i enjoy looking at and i enjoy um exploring possibilities there and from running exhibition events myself seeing it from the other side as to what what would i like what could i offer i i really enjoy it i enjoy that part of the sport and it's not easy it isn't easy at all and you've got to be prepared to occasionally get a door slammed in your face or a custard pie in the face but I've been very fortunate to get some brilliant partners in my 12 years of playing. I mean, almost that ties back a little bit to the difference between U.S. squash and England squash, where money earned, right, versus suddenly you have to go get it. And you're in a you're in a different, you have to think differently, right? And um, so I definitely agree with that. And I think the other big part that I've learned when, whether it's fundraising or sponsorship sales, is we often are very excited and tend to speak a lot about uh, what we'll get out of it versus we're asking for money yeah. from someone else. What are they going to get out of it? Yeah, yeah. Right? That's the key I've found, trying to find what makes, you know, what what you might um, enjoy receiving from a professional player might be different to the person and probably is different to the person sat next to you. So the, the skill is trying to figure out what makes you tick, what makes the person next to you tick. And, and that's the real skill. And and it can be quite a bizarre things. So the first couple of sponsors I approached back in England, they were very specific pitches to each person. And, you know, it didn't always come off. But if you really sit down and think about it and have those conversations with people and throw ideas at them, normally there's something that will, you know, make them light up and think, oh, I'd love that. And the more you do it, like anything, the more you do it, the better you get, the more ideas you become sort of open to and aware of. And and also talking to other players, how do you do it? You know, the sharing of knowledge is key. You know, there's no point trying to hang on to all the answers. And I'm constantly intrigued as to if a player's got a new sponsor, how have you gone about that? You know, not over the top, but I'm just intrigued as to, you know, could I be doing something different? Because, you know, if, if I raise more money through sponsorship, if they raise more money through sponsorship, it's more money coming into the game. That That's what we want. We don't, it's not just oh, great, I can afford to fly to events. It's more money in the game, more exposure for the game, more people investing in the game. Well, it sounds like you really have a lot of passion for this. And 
what has other than getting more reps in it and more practice where have you been turning to to learn how to get better at this yourself like it's i, I imagine you, you've done a lot of educating just through your own uh, outreach and how have you done that so yeah apart from just doing more of it i mean i'm a big fan i'm a big rugby fan and uh looking at other sports uh, i'm a big boxing fan so i look at how these i mean it's not rocket science it's not you know i'm not breaking new ground or anything like that but i'm just sort of intrigued as to the business behind those sports and how how they attract sponsors partners so just almost casually through listening to podcasts watching videos just pick up little bits of ideas and not all of them translate but it might just be something that i think oh that's that's a bit interesting and and also approaching people that have i was fortunate when i first started approaching sponsors that i I met a guy who was the CEO of a professional rugby team in the area. And he kindly gave me two or three hours of his time and just gave me a bit of a roadmap as to, right, you should be doing X, Y, and Z. This is how to present. And it, and it gave me a real sort of good spine of as to what I was offering. And it kind of put me in the right ballpark immediately, which probably saved a lot of time and, and made sure that I made use of opportunities that were very promising rather than going in with no idea. That's brilliant. And it's nice that someone of that caliber, especially um, yeah. shared that information, because that just giving you a shortcut of like, and it doesn't mean it's going to be easier, but at least you have, uh, you're getting the opportunity of like the lessons learned that they've had and passing it on. So that's massive. I know as part of the PSA, this is a massive area that we need to be getting more involved in. And we are starting to, there's a lot of things coming together all at once. And but really helping the players maximize their potential, whether it's media training. You know, unfortunately, these days, so much of how we communicate is through social media. And it's not natural or intuitive. In fact, when I do my own promoting, it's awkward, right? So yeah. I, some people are far more natural towards that. So again, being an internal resource to help players do that, because so much of what they've had to do is figure out by themselves. So I'm glad to say that that will um, be changing over the course. But it's going to take Brilliant. some time and I think there's the, there'll be opportunity for you to share your lessons learned and pass it back. So it's not easy. Is it going, going in front of the camera? No one particularly, especially if you've got, if you're doing a selfie kind of video, yeah. but I, I listened to a podcast yesterday about um, English premiership rugby. And one of the domestic leagues in the UK has been bought out by a uh, nation, which is part owned by Jay-Z. And uh, so it's a very bizarre move that they've invested in this domestic rugby competition that they were talking yesterday on the podcast. And they spoke so much about trying to get the players' stories across that, you know, the major sports across the world, you almost know them by a handful of names. And they were talking a lot about this in rugby, highlighting people with interesting backstories. How do we make them bigger to engage bigger brands? And, and I just, I mean, it, it sounded obvious once they said it, but I just thought that's brilliant. And, and I think squash, you know, squash is a global game. There's so many stories, yeah. so many personalities. We need to, we need to find a way to bring that out. That doesn't mean that it's just, uh, someone's got a personality because they throw a racket against the wall or something like that, you know? Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think that holds true across sales period. It's kind of, it's kind of like a uh, uh, story selling, right? And that's why we get involved in anything. It's not just like, what does this widget do? But there's a little bit, oh, they spend X amount of time doing this or it's sourced here. And that's so, what, yeah. When I, when I approach my sponsors, the first couple of sponsors I got played at the squash club I grew up at. So they'd seen me since I was a kid. So I was doing exactly that to them. But they'd seen the story grow. Unfold, and, yeah. 
yeah, so that, that it was maybe an easier sell, but it's the same same idea. You know, you, you're selling the, the story and. And I think, you know, part of this is is making sure it's the right people to approach with, because I, I can only imagine from your sponsors, there's a level of pride to be like, hey, Nathan approached me back then. And to see people achieve their goals, people get excited about. And that is just beyond whatever transaction occurs is is actually like excitement, pleasure, happiness, like all these things. So the yeah. money itself is just an agreement or a transaction that occurs, but there can be so much more that happens. Um, and I've developed great friendships with a lot of my a lot of my sponsors I've had for over five years now, and I count them as friends. And and they're people that come to events when they can. They're people that stay up till ridiculous o'clock to watch me play in Houston. They just love it. They absolutely love the sport. And uh, again, it's brilliant because it, it's uh, they've got. Hopefully, it's helped them grow their passion for squash. Absolutely. Just to give some context of this for for any listeners, because again, this is a question that's out there, and and if. You, you don't want to talk about it, no problem, and we can edit it or move along. But to give a sense of what is the high and the low range of sponsorships that a player like yourself, and you don't have to reveal yourself personally, but like, what's the range of someone now breaking into the top 50? What are the asks that you're getting? It, it varies. My experience is sponsorship is more readily available in the US. It's my, it's been my, I've only been here living full-time six months, but that's been my experience. The, the top players can command more because they've got if I approach a sponsor, depending on what they want, if they if they see uh, television advertisement as a major thing they want, the top 16 players in the world, basically, or the top eight even, are the only ones that can assure that. So for me, at 40 in the world, that's a harder sell for me. So you've got to think a bit more outside the box. Um, e- even though I might not be able to get that TV exposure, there might be other things that I'm better placed to do than those players that are playing all those major events all over the world and don't have a lot of time. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily look at it as just purely that, although I think it was probably genuinely be true, the top players can command more sponsorship. It's the package you put together and the story you tell. And uh, I, I, I would I would say that um, my experience in the US is that there's more sponsorship potential. And you can see that because there are major events here. That there are fewer major events in the UK. Yeah. But yeah, that's been interesting for me as to how to pitch it to certain people. What do they want? Putting those packages together. So I hope I didn't dodge that question too much. I feel a bit uncomfortable giving specific numbers, but um, that's been my experience without giving those numbers. Yeah, no, I understand. And, and, uh, and are you open for sponsors? Oh, always. Someone's watching always, this okay. or listening to this, get in touch. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I love the sponsorship stuff and p- friends of mine that know me like make fun of me about it because I enjoy it. I enjoy creating those relationships, introducing new people. to. Like, I believe squash is one of the greatest sports in the world. And, and I believe there's great value to if someone sponsors me and comes to a major event, they get to sit on the front row, potentially watch the match get a drink after to do that in American football, rugby, soccer, yeah. you know, you're talking massive sums and yeah. with squash, you've got that relationship with the player that the player is not going to be like, stay away from me, you know, right. because of our sport, like the beauty of our sport, not being quite as big is that you can get so close to the players, yeah. and, the access, and the we, approachability. Yeah, exactly. And, mm-hmm. and that's something that, you know, most squash players are pretty down to earth. I spoke about the community at the start. They're pretty down to earth, nice people. And, that's such a strength of our sport and um sponsors i think can get can get a lot more access than than they would in almost 
you know, most other sports. Completely agree. Well, building on that in terms of opportunity and growth, um, something I think you and I both share passion, enthusiasm, and, and actually putting some work behind is outdoor squash. And you, for the, I believe the inaugural event of the, the steel court, uh, a tournament. Yeah, Massbeth. Yeah, Massbeth. Uh, you actually won that event, which was a really great format that it was, a. Uh, I believe it was a 64 players. Six, 64 players. Um, and it was a handicap event. There was, uh, yeah, there was a, this one guy that came up with an algorithm to work out the handicaps. I was constantly trying to find his address to send him gifts to try and influence that algorithm, but didn't succeed. But it worked out pretty well. And uh, I mean, I'm going to say that because I won. So <laughs> other, people, <laughs> other people will probably say it was a terrible handicap system. But uh, it was brilliant. And, and I said to the guys after the event, you know, in a time where things were pretty miserable because of COVID, squash clubs were struggling, being closed, to have some good news around the sport was just brilliant. And yeah, I agree. They're great people and they've got great ideas and they're willing to share their ideas. They, they want the sport to grow. They're not, you know, a closed shop. They want to share ideas. They want to help people. They want to help people get access to, to sport. And someone said to me the other day, most sports in America – you can play outdoors squash. You can't, which is quite bizarre when you think of it. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, outdoor squash kind of hit my radar in 2008 when there was an opportunity. Wow. This was one in New York city and at us squash where someone close to the sport loved it said, Hey, I'm part of a park and recs department committee and there's opportunity to get squash in. And it just, for some reason, the technology wasn't quite there and the manufacturers weren't willing to do it. And so it's been great to, get more manufacturers involved to really you know kind of meet that opportunity and i still don't know why it hasn't taken off more and part of it is we do need people to make that investment to kind of prove it yeah. out and do that and take that leap of faith which i know in chicago is a big deal and arnie drad is really helping lead yeah. that charge with project beacon and we really need that those examples and people from the community rallying which is exciting to see because i think it's i think we're finally on the precipice and COVID actually the blessing in the skies might be that we do need to really factor outdoor, but playing on the court, what was your experience like on the, on the steel court? I loved it. I tell people it's 90% as good as a good traditional court. The amazing thing to me was, I know squash players can be funny about the floor. The floor was brilliant and it, and it snows and it rains a lot in New York. And that, that floor is just as good as it was in day one, which constantly amazes me. In fact, in the semi-final, I played Jamie Haycox and we had a rain delay in the I think it was the fifth game so Jamie yeah. and I had to stop and we both went back to our cars put the heaters on while we waited for the rain to stop and then Rob Rob Gibraltar swept the court and we were back on and it was playable within like 10 minutes of it stopped raining it was crazy it makes a great sound the the difference in play between playing in November where we played the final and playing in June is unbelievable yeah i, I mean it, it gets pretty warm in the summer um, and you get a great sweat and in november it's perfectly playable it, it just you know once you're warmed up it's great and it's so like in a place like new york which is so busy so intense so many buildings to be outside playing a sport f felt as a squash player felt fantastic you know looking up and seeing clear blue skies it's something I'd never experienced before with a squash racket in my hand. And uh, I mean, I fell in love with it. And and I, I think I would have said that if I hadn't done well in the event. You know, I, I've been intrigued by their projects for so long. And I just think they're great people that have got 
a great idea that I hope will catch on. And like you said, once these uh, few places, what, the more we get, I think it will snowball. But the first couple, that investment is what we need. Yeah, with any sales, it's your, your hardest customer is your first one. And then yeah. second hardest is a shame. Like it just keeps going, right? You need that momentum. So, yeah. Well, w- w- one last question before I, I go into the quick fire. And it, it occurred to me you are in, engaged and unfortunately had to postpone your wedding due to COVID, which is like so many other people in the world these days have been experiencing. But there's actually, as I was giving it some thought, there are a lot of couples on tour <laughs> and a lot of uh, marriages that occur from on tour. So, how many would you say couples and or marriages are are out there? I don't know. There's probably, I can think of three or four immediately. So there must be, I don't know, in the top 100, there's probably six, something like that, I would say. Yeah. And it's brilliant. I mean, I I, uh, I almost swore against going out with another squash player because I thought I can't date someone like me. <laughs> um, but it's been brilliant. I, like Haley and I have been able to travel the world together. That's been fantastic. Yeah. Tournaments can be lonely places because we're fighting for ranking points, money, and, and it can be a tough environment sometimes. And to have someone there that is your partner, it's brilliant. And there are stressful times for sure. You know, you're trying to, you're both trying to be selfish athletes. Yeah. So that can be tough, but on the whole, it, it's brilliant. And you've also got sort of, um, two pieces in the game you know if you lose i feel just as happy when hayden's doing well and vice versa you know and i we genuinely mean that so yeah i i I think on the whole i've been very fortunate to to play professional squash with my future wife and i think that makes a big difference of just in any any couple where they understand the other person's world right like if you're on the road and it just makes it harder for you to communicate because you need to be focusing on yourself that can be really hard in the other partner right yeah one one story or headline that did come out of, of married couples on the tours, I think the U.S. Open, when uh, Ali Farag and Noor uh, El-Tiab won it, there was the first time. They're, uh, they're annoying, aren't they? They're really nice people, and they're really good at squash. I mean, it's just, ah, <laughs> yeah. oh, you just want to dislike them, but there's nothing there. It's a nightmare. I, um, and I think that that was the, the first, you know, just in the world of sports, where a husband and wife duo winning a major championship amazing so, yeah absolutely amazing and and they've now got a child so give it 20 years and uh they might <laughs> yeah who, might who also has a u.s open winner i know yeah yeah who knows who knows well i know uh the whole composite of what you've been working on is certainly yielding some great results and <laughs> uh, thank you very much and i know that um a lot of people are rooting for your success and seeing where can this story continue to go and we're excited for the rest of your journey appreciate it Connor. thanks for having me all right cheers well thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on squash radio we hope you enjoyed this latest episode but before you leave we just have one quick last message as you know squash radio wants to help tell some of the best stories from squash world but in order to do that we want and welcome your help do you know a person or a story that involves squash that is interesting funny moved you you care about reflects your passion for the sport well share it with us and let's try and get it out there on the air you can email me at squashradio at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media again thanks for your time and well 
Until next time, be well and have fun.